When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Iri Nini Enchen, I make a welcome for you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 189, For the Ancestors. This is the fourth and final part in our tour of the great temple of Seti I at Abydos. We have already visited the temple's main sanctuary, including its chapels and its complex for the god Osiris. We have also viewed the King List, an interesting record that seems to present the legitimate ancestors of Seti I going all the way back to the start of Egypt's kingdom. Then, we have explored the Osirion, the symbolic tomb or cenotaph possibly dedicated to Seti himself or to the god Osiris as the king of the underworld. Now, we bring all of this together. We explore a few more sections of the temple that I had not discussed previously, and we consider the monument overall. What was Seti trying to achieve? Let's explore. Imagine yourself, once again, in the hypostyle hall. You are facing south, or upriver. On your right, the doors of the seven chapels are arrayed in a line. And as you walk along the hall, passing these doors, you will eventually reach another portal. This one is in the south wall of the sanctuary. It is not the corridor of lists that we have already visited. Instead, this one is on the right, it leads to a small, discreet section of the temple, with a couple of additional rooms for important deities. This section is the Nefertem Sokar complex, and it is one of my favourite parts of the temple. Very briefly, I'd like to take you inside. Taking this door, you enter another hall. This hall is much smaller than the hypostyle that you just left, and it only has three columns. The hall, like the temple, is oriented northeast to southwest, so kind of sunrise to sunset. And at the western end of this hall, there are two rooms, two chapels devoted to special gods. These are the shrines of Pithar Sokar and Nefertem. We'll meet them quickly. Nefertem is another deity associated with creation. His symbol is the lotus flower, which emerged from the infinite waters at the beginning of the universe. His name means something like totally beautiful, totally youthful, or totally perfect, depending how you translate Nefer. Maybe it's all three. Nefertem is an interesting deity, associated with kingship and the powers of the pharaoh. He was also responsible for perfumes. Thanks to his symbol, the lotus, Nefertem was connected with sweet-smelling things, and you can imagine him as one of those deities who leaves a pleasant scent anywhere they go. 
Today, Nefertem would be the patron deity of the great perfume houses, and if his name also means totally beautiful, then he would probably be the poster child for many cosmetic companies or fashion houses. It's easy to imagine Nefertem as a model, doing his little turn on the catwalk. He struts down the runway, leaving a pleasant scent as he goes. Just a 10 out of 10 babe. Nefertem might be too sexy for this podcast, so let's move to his neighbour, Pitar Sokar. Pitar Sokar is a hybrid deity, a combination of two figures, Pitar and Sokar. Both of these gods were associated with artisans, with craftsmanship during the early periods, and by the New Kingdom, they had become combined into a kind of underworld or necropolis deity. Sokar, especially, is connected with the great god Osiris, and he is a powerful symbol of the king of the dead and the concept of resurrection in the afterlife. Sokar takes the form of a falcon. He looks kind of like Horus, but he combines aspects of that deity and Ra with the underworld powers of Osiris. In particular, Sokar and the festivals associated with him seem to have been an important part of a pharaoh's afterlife memorial. When a king died, they wanted their soul to be sustained with offerings and worship, and Sokar and his festivals were connected with those rituals. When Seti was commissioning this temple, he wanted it to last forever, to sustain offerings for his soul and to preserve his name. The god Sokar and the festivals associated with him were going to help that process. Through worshipping of Sokar, Seti himself would enjoy benefits in the afterlife. The chapel of Sokar is especially beautiful. It has high-quality, finely carved images. The paint is gone, and the blocks have suffered some damage over the centuries. But thanks to archaeologists and conservators, the chapel is now rebuilt and reconstructed, and you can see the images back in their proper place. They are a wonderful example of Seti's art. As I mentioned, Sokar is especially connected with Osiris, and we actually see that in the art. The chapel of Sokar is decorated with images from the story of Osiris, scenes from his life and afterlife, and connected with his religion. In one image, we see Osiris as a mummy. He lies upon a bed, wrapped in a shroud, and wearing a crown. Above his body, we see the figure of a bird, a kite. This kite is labelled Aset or Isis. It is the goddess coming to the body of her husband and using her magic to impregnate herself with the couple's son, Horus. It is an important part of the Osiris story that even after his death, Isis is able to guarantee the succession. Horus himself appears at the foot of Osiris's bed. He is blessing his father, and his appearance guarantees that the ritual will be successful, that Isis and her magic will triumph over death, and that the lineage of Osiris, that is, the lineage of the pharaohs, will continue eternally. Originally, the carvings on these walls included images of Osiris's phallus. Sadly, over the centuries, somebody has chiseled those away. Perhaps they felt insecure at the size and virility of his member, or perhaps they were overcome with excitement and could not concentrate in its presence. Either way, Osiris has lost his appendage, but its shadow is still visible, and the goddess Isis remains, enacting the conception forevermore. So the chapel of Sokar is beautifully carved, although slightly desecrated. 
and it includes wonderful scenes that are important to the Osiris story. I particularly like these two rooms because most tourists don't actually come into them. They tend to leave the hypostyle hall and go straight to the next section, which means the chapels of Pithar Sokar and Nefertem are quiet and serene. Whenever I visit the temple, I like to take a moment within these rooms, just to enjoy the peace and solitude. Anyway, this hall with its shrine for Nefertem and Pithar Sokar is an important part of the complex. Seti has dedicated his temple to a variety of deities, but in particular, he has focused on Osiris, Isis, Horus, and the ideas of the underworld. The king of the dead and his family are the most prominent figures in the overall temple. Nefertem, a creator deity, and Pitha Sokar, an underworld deity, are connected with those ideas. Sokar, in particular, will help Seti to reach the afterlife, and the worship of Sokar on earth will guarantee the memory and immortality of the king and his place in the underworld. So the chapels may seem like a random add-on, but they do have an important function. The chapels of Nefertem and Sokar have beautiful images. They also have extensive texts. Columns of hieroglyphs adorn the walls of these shrines, just like every part of the temple. Again, they present Seti as an offering-bearer, giving prayers, sustenance, and gifts for the gods. The texts are long, I won't read all of them, but here is a sample. In the columned hall, just in front of the chapels, King Seti makes an offering of wine and meat for Sokar. In return, Sokar promises Seti, quote, All life, stability, and dominion. I, Sokar, give you all health, all joy, all sustenance, all bravery, and all victory, all food, and all provision. Thus, Seti gives wine and meat, and in return he gets everything. Pretty good deal in the circumstances. In the chapels themselves, there are many prayers and offerings. They are quite formulaic, but a couple are interesting, and they give a sense of the religious and ritual significance of the shrines, and the purpose of the temple overall. In one scene, King Seti kneels before a group of gods. The group includes Nefertem, Sokar, the god Shu, or the air, Horus, Isis, Nephthys, and Hathor. The pharaoh raises his hands to pray to these gods, and the hieroglyphs describe it as, quote, Adoring the god, Sakhmet who is above, glorious is she, and her son, Horus, Nefertem, who protects the two lands, who causes humanity to flourish. Come, Nefertem, rejoice at seeing the souls celebrating. The gods are awakened. The gods of the palace fill you with grace. Love of you, Nefertem, is in the heart of the gods. May you put love of the king, Menmaatra, into the body of the two river banks and all the people of Egypt. Protect the king from every evil thing forever. End quote. Seti prays especially to Nefertem, who is totally perfect, and the king reveals his public desires to be loved by all and protected from harm, to enjoy the same honors and blessings as the gods who rejoice in their immortal land. Seti, and the Abydos temple generally, dedicate themselves to this purpose. Every chapel, every image, every text throughout the monument 
seeks the god's blessings and the fulfillment of Seti's wishes. Once you leave the Nefertem and Sokar chapels, you visit the Corridor of Lists. That is where the King List appears, on the western wall of that corridor. But this part of the temple has other features that are distinct and interesting. Very quickly, let's take another look. The King List appears on the western wall of the corridor, on your right as you enter. On the eastern wall, to your left, there is actually another list. This one is far less famous, far less discussed, and far less understood in a historical sense. On the eastern wall, you will find a list of shrines. This is exactly what it sounds like. A list of sanctuaries, chapels, and small temples throughout Egypt. They are all dedicated to various gods, each of whom rule different towns and provinces. The shrine list is much longer than the king list, 130 entries versus 76 for the kings. That makes sense. Rulers often commissioned multiple chapels or shrines in their reigns, so the number would naturally proliferate over time. And with so many villages and towns throughout the Nile Valley, each of which required its own places of worship, well, we could easily imagine that these 130 names are just the tip of the obelisk. I won't read all of the shrines, there are too many, but a small section includes offerings, quote, for Osiris in Hut Ka Pitar, that is, in Memphis. For Bast, in the estate of Bast, possibly the town of Bubastis. For Sobek, in Shedit, which is in the Fayum. For Isis, in the Great Place. For Heka, or Magic, in the estate of Magic. For Anubis, in the Two Mounds. For Ma'at, in the Western Desert. For Kanum, in the Southern Islands the Nile Cataracts, for Thoth, or Jehuti, in the House of Purification, for the Knife Bearer, in the House of Knives. End quote. I used to live down the road from a shop called the House of Knives, and it always amused me to think that this might secretly be the shrine of the god Knife Bearer. That is just a small sample of the 130 names. Alas, many of these shrines are obscure. The gods are clear enough, but the locations of these shrines, those are much harder to confirm. Some locations are recognisable, like Memphis, the Fayum, or the Nile Cataracts. Others are more vague, like the House of Purification, or the Estate of Magic. Physically, most of these shrines have not been located by archaeologists. We can assume that all of them existed in some form, but they may have been tiny local shrines, that have disappeared over the centuries. Surprisingly, the shrine list does not refer to the great temples, places like Ipet-Sut or Karnak, or Abju, Abydos. Perhaps this is Seti's list of lesser-known sanctuaries, smaller places that he wanted to honour and give their due. We can only speculate, but that is the shrine list. The presence of this list is interesting, just as we have the king list on the opposite wall, the shrine list gives a sense of Seti's religious priorities. The pharaoh's temple at Abydos seems to concentrate a whole bunch of religious and ceremonial ideas in one monument. We have seen this repeatedly so far. The seven shrines for multiple gods, 
separate rooms and complexes for Osiris, a whole list dedicated to the ancient kings, and now a list of shrines throughout the country. It almost reads as if Seti was trying to create a new centralised temple, a kind of pantheon for all the gods of Egypt. Hypothetically, through the images, texts and offerings taking place within this temple, every deity and every royal ancestor could enjoy worship and praise within a single complex. I'll come back to that idea at the end of the episode when we do the roundup, but you see the point. The shrine list, although often overlooked, may help us to better understand the temple as a whole. By this point in our tour, we have officially left the main sanctuary, and we've moved into the southern part of the monument. Seti's temple has a slightly unusual layout. Instead of the normal straight rectangle of many temples, the Seti monument is more like a giant L. The temple has a suite of rooms, including the Corridor of Lists and the Nefertem Soka shrines, in a sort of southern extension. This L-shape has long been a matter of discussion, especially because the Osirion is right behind the Seti temple. For those who believe the Osirion is Old Kingdom, predating the 19th dynasty, the Seti temple's L-shape may reflect the discovery of that monument. The idea goes that Seti's architects started building their temple on one plan, then discovered the Osirion, and then they hurriedly changed their architectural layout to accommodate the older monument. That idea originally came from Flinders Petrie. In 1902, Petrie had been part of the excavation that first located the Osirion, and in a book published in 1903, Petrie suggested that originally, the Corridor of Lists, the Nefertem Soka shrines, and all the other southern rooms had been in the western part of the temple. He drew a little schematic and everything, showing the proposed arrangement. For some observers, this seems like a likely explanation for the temple's L-shape. However, in the hundred plus years since Petrie made that observation, the Egyptological understanding of ancient temples has advanced considerably. We have a much better idea of the various components that were included in New Kingdom sanctuaries, what rooms tended to go where, what sections were arranged in what order. And thanks to this much more developed understanding, we actually have a better idea of why Seti's temple has this unusual shape. The southern extension, including the Nefertem Soka shrines, the corridor of lists, and the various bark shrines and storerooms, all of these are secondary complexes. What I mean is, none of these are dedicated to the primary god of the temple. Officially, the household god of this sanctuary is Osiris. It is Osiris and his family that get the elaborate Osiris complex at the very rear of the temple. And throughout the monument, and Abydos generally, Osiris is the dominant figure of the region. Now, under normal circumstances, King Seti might have dedicated a temple solely to this god. If he had done that, we would expect the Seti temple to appear like a single rectangular structure. At the centre and rear of that temple, you would find the shrine for Osiris, his personal chapel. Then, around that shrine, you would find the various bark halls, treasuries, and storage rooms for maintaining the temple's operations. This is the kind of layout you will see at Karnak, Edfu, Dendera, 
and all sorts of great temples throughout Egypt. But Seti's temple is different. Instead of one shrine for Osiris, located at the rear and centre of the temple, instead we have seven shrines. The seven chapels for seven different gods span the entire width of the rectangular sanctuary. What's more, the area behind those shrines, where you might normally find storage facilities, that is dedicated to the Osiris complex, the special area devoted to the god and his family. In other words, Seti's temple deviates significantly from the standard layout of an Egyptian sanctuary. It should have one shrine for Osiris, but instead it has seven, plus a whole additional section. Okay, why is that important? Well, because Seti decided to include these seven chapels instead of one, plus the Osiris complex, that meant that the western or rear section of his temple was totally dedicated to religious sanctuaries and shrines. As a result, all of the space that would normally be dedicated to storage facilities and treasuries and those kind of spaces, they did not have anywhere to go. In Petrie's analysis, he thought these southern rooms may have simply been attached to the rear of the temple before they decided to move them. But that arrangement actually wouldn't work from a practical and religious viewpoint. The seven chapels and the Osiris complex, they are supposed to be off-limits, secluded sections that only the royal family and the highest-ranking priests or acolytes were permitted to enter. The king, of course, could come into the shrines any time he wanted, and priests would enter to perform the daily rituals and ensure that the gods had their offerings. But most of the time, those seven shrines and the Osiris complex were shut with wooden doors, and they weren't accessible to most people. What that means from a practical perspective is that the entire western or rear end of the temple is effectively off-limits to 99% of the population 99% of the time. From that perspective, it wouldn't work to have the storage rooms, treasuries, and hall of the sacred barks sitting behind these shrines. You can't have people coming and going through those sacred rooms to access more mundane facilities. From that perspective, it makes a lot more sense that having added all of the additional shrines and the Osiris complex, Seti's architects would simply arrange for the storage or practical facilities to be on the southern extension of the temple. Granted, it does give the Seti monument a unique floor plan, and it looks weird if you're comparing it strictly to other classic temples. But we should always bear in mind the features of Seti's monument that make it unique. Those seven chapels and the Osiris complex fundamentally alter the layout of the monument. Everything in front of those shrines looks normal, hypostyle halls, forecourts, pylons, harbour, etc. But as soon as Seti decided to put those additional chapels there, it demanded a rethink of the practical rooms and aspects. Leaving the corridor of lists with the records of kings and shrines, we head westward once again. We go up that corridor to the vast western courtyard which houses the Osirion. But now, we walk past the Osirion, continuing to head west, until we reach the outer wall of the Seti Temple. Here is something interesting. Another feature that is worth discussing is how the temple complex of Seti I 
connects to other areas of Abydos. At the western edge of the precinct, the Temenos Wall, the mud brick enclosure, is broken at one point with a pylon. A great stone gateway stands at the western end of the temple domain. That seems a curious feature. Why would you have a pylon in the western area, when most worshippers and priests are going to come from the east, from the river Nile and the temple harbour? Why put a doorway in the west, and on such a monumental scale? The pylon gateway was uncovered during the coalfield and petri excavations, which I referenced in the Osirion episode. During their work, especially excavating the Temenos wall, and surveying the temple's alignment and dimensions, Caulfield and Petrie observed something interesting. First, that pylon gateway is aligned to the central axis of the temple. If you pass through the door in the middle of the wall, you will walk along the central line of the Great Sanctuary, and also the Osirion. So the pylon is not a later insertion added for convenience or randomly. It serves a purpose, one worthy of precise alignment. So, why is it here? The answer for that lies to the west. Caulfield and Petrie excavated around the pylon gateway, clearing it out and documenting what they found. In the process, they uncovered a road. A path leading west from the gateway extended out into the desert. The path seems to have been a sunken causeway, dug down into the bedrock and then lined with stone. Caulfield and Petrie followed this path out into the desert, and as they went they continually measured the alignment, making sure that they were following the axis of the temple and the gate. Following that path, Petrie and Caulfield soon arrived at a location near to the Umm el Kab. The Umm el Kab is the great necropolis of the earliest rulers, the first and second dynasty kings who built their tombs at Abydos. The Umm el Kab is slightly northwest of the Seti temple, it is not exactly aligned, but following that pylon gateway and the causeway, Petrie and Caulfield soon uncovered an offering site. The path leading from the Seti temple terminated in a great mound covered in shards of pottery. The shards come from broken dishes, jugs, and vases, and they seem to be the leftovers of ancient worship. When people brought offerings, bread, cakes, meat, vegetables, fruit, flowers, even oils and cosmetics, they would usually present them in a variety of pottery dishes, or vases or jugs. These dishes have a variety of distinctive shapes, and excavators working in Egyptian temples will often uncover this pottery by the thousands. The pottery sherds are here because during the ancient rituals, the worshippers would present their gifts to the god or the spirits whom they were honouring. Following that offering, the celebrants would usually consume the items in a ritual feast. Then, they would hurl the pottery dishes to the ground, smashing them into bits. You will find similar customs among different cultures today, but this is not a modern interpretation. From the late 18th dynasty, we actually have tomb art that shows Egyptians conducting ceremonial rites, in this case a funeral, and then following that celebration, smashing jugs and dishes upon the ground. The exact significance of the practice is a little bit unclear. It might be a way to ward off evil, a way to end the ceremonial act itself, or perhaps simply a testament to the offering that they have done. Whatever the exact cause, this enormous mound of pottery 
at the western end of a path leading from the Seti temple seems to give us a clue to what was happening. Priests, or perhaps pilgrims, may have brought gifts and offerings for the great kings of the past. They would offer these up at the mound, venerating the ancestors and nourishing the spirits who lived in the Umm el Kab. Following their ritual, they would return to the world of the living. They would head along that path, back to the pylon gateway in the western wall of Seti's temple. To be clear, we are not exactly sure who was doing the offering. The obvious answer would be the priests and acolytes, or perhaps the pharaoh and royal family during important celebrations. But we can't rule out the possibility that high-ranking courtiers and officials may have gained permission to come to this temple and make offerings to the royal ancestors. From the New Kingdom, we do have references to high-ranking Egyptians making a pilgrimage to Abydos. It's possible that they were also involved. At the very least, we can imagine the priests and priestesses performing these rituals, walking along the desert road, clad in their linen robes, playing music, and carrying dishes of offerings. They would present their gifts to the great rulers of the past, and month by month, year by year, the artifacts of that worship would slowly accumulate. Dishes broke and lay within the sand, and for every celebration, the mound of offerings would grow. This offering mound, and the path connecting to the Seti temple, gives us another clue to what Seti was intending. When he and his architects designed their great temple, they seem to have included a facility for accessing the Umm el Kab. So priests, and perhaps pilgrims, could come from Seti's monument to the necropolis of the earliest kings. In other words, the great temple of Seti I may be partially dedicated to the royal ancestors. Leaving the western section, we return to the Great City Temple. Now, there is one last section of this building that I want to describe. As some of my patrons have noticed, the maps of Seti's temples, the ground plans, include a small section in the northwestern corner. If you are looking at the temple vertically, with the western side at the top, at the top right of the building, there is a small rectangular space. It seems to be an isolated room. There is no door or visible access to it. What is that doing there? What is the purpose of that section? This is what we call a blind room. It is a small chamber with no visible entrance or exit. The room seems to be there just to maintain the overall symmetry of the temple, to avoid having a small cutout in the corner. It's not clear why they decided to do that, instead of just extending the adjacent rooms to fill out the relevant section. Technically, there are two of these rooms, one normal height, and another tiny one at the top. The rooms might be well shafts. These chambers have not been fully excavated, as far as I'm aware, and we don't know how deep they go. It is possible that these rooms descend to a local water source or aquifer, perhaps the same one that fills the Osirion with groundwater. That is speculative, but it would make sense. We know the Seti temple has another two wells in the forecourts, but those are designed for washing a person, cleaning the dirt and dust when they approach the temple. To maintain purity, especially for offerings, the sanctuary may have required a cleaner water source, or even a sacred one connected to the Osirion. This blind chamber might be a well shaft. 
One reason these rooms are interesting is because apparently in antiquity, somebody else thought there might be treasure within them. In the Osirion, to the west of the Seti temple, there is a hall in the northern section of the monument. In one corner of that hall, there is a hole. This hole is a tunnel dug by prospective robbers, who broke through the wall of the Osirion and started digging towards the Seti temple. According to Henri Frankfurt, one of the excavators for the Osirion, the tunnel heads in the direction of the small blind room. It doesn't seem like they reached it. According to Frankfurt's excavations, the tunnel ends abruptly after approximately three meters, and any further attempts to dig bring a cascade of sand down from the surface above. Presumably, the robbers stopped when they encountered this. But you never know. The tunnel, and the blind room generally, would really benefit from further excavation, and they're definitely a good object for imagination and speculation. There is one more monument to discuss. This is not strictly part of the Seti temple, it is a little distance away, but it's an interesting structure that gives us a hint to what was happening within the wider landscape. About a hundred meters north of Seti's temple, and just outside the Temenos or enclosure wall, there is a small stone building. It is small, just a single room, but the structure is made of high quality limestone and covered with finely carved images and texts. This is a chapel or shrine, but it's not dedicated to Seti. Instead, this small sanctuary is devoted to his father, King Ramesses I. Ramesses I only reigned for 18 months, maybe two years, so he did not have a long rule. As a result, very few monuments survive for that king. But at Abydos, we do have this small chapel dedicated to Ramesses' memory. The chapel itself is nothing spectacular, just a single room adorned with images of the king and the gods. It includes lists of offerings to be presented for the soul and nourishment of Ramesses. In effect, it's a tiny memorial chapel, just like Seti's larger memorial temple to the south. The chapel seems to be a work of Seti I, a monument to his father in honour of his memory. Within the chapel, we have scenes of both kings, Seti and Ramesses, making offerings to the gods, and in another, the figure of Ramesses sits enthroned before a long list of offerings, the gifts and sustenance that priests and people should bring for the memory of his immortal soul. The pictures are beautiful, but a little formulaic. If you would like to see them, you can find them online in the public domain. Link in the episode description. I mention this chapel for two reasons. First, it is an interesting example of Seti's piety towards his father, and another marker of his construction projects in Abydos. Secondly, the chapel also indicates Seti's larger reverence for the royal ancestors, both Ramesses I and all the kings that came before. We touched on this earlier with the king list of Abydos, and the path leading out to the Umm el Kab, the necropolis of the early dynasties. Now, the chapel of Ramesses I seems to add another component to that story. When Seti's builders and artists completed their work on the chapel, Seti erected a stela before it. This stela includes an extended dedication, and a record of King Ramesses' time as the pharaoh. I have referenced this stela before, 
it was one of my primary sources for the reign of Ramesses I and the ascent of young Seti to the kingship. But one thing I didn't mention is how this stela elaborates on Seti's reverence for the royal ancestors and the larger significance of his religious work in Abydos. In the main body of the stela, Seti describes his work and his goals. Quote, I constructed his, Ramesses, chapel in excellent work. It is in the neighborhood of my temple of millions of years, my memorial temple. I accompanied my maker, Ramesses or Osiris, during the funerary rituals, when the mourning women surrounded him with prayers, and their hands struck their faces for him. His descendants will remember his beauty or perfection. Lamentation will be made for Ramesses, for generation upon generation. End quote. So having described Ramesses' reign and his own ascent in earlier sections, Seti now references the funeral of Ramesses, and how future generations will remember and honour him, thanks to this chapel. Next, Seti switches focus to discuss the religious angle, and the importance of the ancestors as divine beings. Quote, The sayings of the ancestors, they express the truth, or ma'at. Whoever hears these sayings, he arises from his place. He has awakened, and he has seen the sun. The ancestors make his heart happy within the duat, or underworld, and his temple is well established in the eternal place. All is right and proper, as long as the memory of him abides together with me and with his family. End quote. So, the ancestors are powerful within the next world, and they impact the order of our world and the immortality of those who pass beyond. It's an important statement that gives a clue to Seti's priorities. Next, Seti gets meditative. He starts to reflect on the fragility of memory and how important it is to preserve the legacy of those who came before. Seti writes, quote, I am a son who honours his parent. I am neither ignorant nor neglectful of his condition. Many have passed on since the time of the god, and next morning their very names are forgotten. But it is no trouble for one to do something about that. Then everyone can say, he is one who has established his name. My thoughts turned to him who had passed away, Ramesses or my ancestors. I was truly concerned for my father. I am like Horus beside his maker, Osiris, in that I remember the name of my father, or ancestor. And now that he is a god, he travels the underworld, or duat. The sun illuminates him in the place of darkness. He uncovers his face, he shrugs off his dust, and the north wind sings before him. End quote. Seti considers how many have died and been immediately lost to history. But of course, he, a pious son, does not allow that to happen, and he performs the simplest gestures, like building a chapel and an entire temple, for the memory of his father and those who came before. Again, it's a key to Seti's state of mind when he was commissioning these projects and planning his larger work. Finally, Seti reflects on his monuments for Osiris, what he has done in Abydos. Quote, I caused the majesty of Wennefer, Osiris, to appear, and to visit his temple forever. I made it the first of the temples of the kings, built since the time of Ra. 
I have satisfied the lords of Abydos, and they now live within this noble temple, an assembly of those who passed on long ago. I, Seti, walk about praising Wennefer Osiris, for he is the ruler, the lord of the necropolis. My temple is committed to his spirit, and the chapel of my father likewise. I have given to Osiris the lands of the south and north together, nor did I forget the west and the east of the land. Everyone is a servant of his temple. May Osiris cause my name to endure forever on this mountain, where sacred images are concealed. May Osiris grant to me eternity in the kingship of Ra, and may he increase my years by millions, without counting my end, without limiting my kingship, like his own records. May Osiris set me upon his former throne, which is on the earth, as one who will never be rivaled or repeated forever. May Osiris truly love my father's temple, and may he honour him in the place of silence. End quote. In my reading, this text hammers home one of Seti's goals and the purpose of his building projects in Abydos. These temples, both for Seti and for Ramesses, are not just acts of self-glorification, although that's part of it. They are also offerings. Offerings to Osiris, the god, but also offerings to the ancestors. These ideas are interconnected. Osiris is a god who, in many respects, embodies every ancestor that has come before. When the kings of the past died, they transcended from the role of Horus to that of Osiris, and so worship of this god is, in many respects, worship of the ancestors themselves. From that perspective, we can start to understand the pharaoh's mindset and his larger goals. Seti's temple complex, including his chapel for Ramesses, is an enormous offering to that religious idea. It's not the only purpose, and I'll come back to that later, but fundamentally, that is a key component of Seti's religious project. He wants to honour those ancestors, for they have power over life and death, they can ensure his immortality, and they will guarantee the strength of his legacy, the perpetuation of his name, and the endurance of his memory. All very human ideals. By now, we have taken a tour of the Seti temple complex. We have seen the hypostyle halls, the seven chapels for major deities, the Osiris complex, the chapels of Nefertem and Sokar, the Hall of Lists, with its record of ancient kings and shrines. Then we have seen the Osirion, a symbolic tomb or cenotaph, possibly for Seti himself, or perhaps for the god Osiris in a larger sense. Finally, we have seen monuments for previous kings, the chapel of Ramesses I, and the offering mound, accessible by a path through a pylon gateway, connected to the Umm el Kab, the tombs of the early rulers. Bringing all of these elements together, certain themes are particularly noteworthy, and they give a sense of the temple's overall religious function. The temple of Seti I at Abydos has three significant purposes. First and foremost, it is a memorial temple for Seti himself, a house of millions of years in which the king's soul could be nourished, his name could be remembered, and his piety could be recognised by the gods and the living. 
Secondly, it is a temple for Osiris, a place for honouring this god, remembering his story, and conducting his rituals and annual celebrations. Adjacent to that, the temple's multiple shrines provide temporary homes for other deities, who may wish to visit Osiris and to partake in his glorious cult. Finally, the Seti temple is dedicated to the royal ancestors, both as individuals and as a symbolic group. The inclusion of the king list and the path leading to the Umm el Kab both serve the kings who came before. These royal ancestors, each of whom had become Osiris in turn, were an important part of the religious landscape. They were the symbols of all that had come before, the eternal continuity of Egypt and its ruling house. Seti's temple and its facilities honour those rulers. Seti's temple is simultaneously a monument to himself, a hope for his immortality, an offering to the king of the dead, and a physical manifestation of Seti's piety and reverence for the long lineage of kings. That brings us to the end of this episode, and to our tour of Seti's great temple. There is so much more that I wish I could have said. There are rooms within the monument that I have never visited, and which I did not get a chance to discuss. We will return to the Seti temple in the future, because some of this king's successors contributed decoration to the monument, and their work is quite interesting in its own right. So we're not fully done with this monument, we will be back. But for now, this is the temple of Seti I, constructed at Abydos, and dedicated to the king, to the god Osiris, and to the royal ancestors. It is truly a magnificent structure, one of the finest temples in Egypt in terms of its architectural unity and its decorative beauty. It is also one of the most unusual temples. In the number of its shrines and chapels, the variety of gods who are worshipped within a single building, and the overwhelming focus on the worship of royal ancestors, the memory of Seti himself, and the eternal kingship of the god Osiris. I could talk about this temple for many more hours to come. Alas, we must finish our tour here. I hope you have enjoyed this journey to the estate of Seti, his temple of millions of years in the sacred landscape of Abydos. For those interested to learn more about Seti's temple, you can find the archaeological publications in the episode description. For the interpretation, there are a couple of major figures. The royal ancestors element was discussed by Caulfield and Petrie, but also by Rosalie David in her book Temple Ritual at Abydos. The religion of Osiris and the focus on Seti as an incarnation of that god can be found in David O'Connor's book Abydos, Egypt's First Pharaohs and the Cult of Osiris. Finally, the memorial temple aspect is discussed by Miroslav Werner in his extensive book Temple of the World, Sanctuaries, Cults, and Mysteries of Ancient Egypt. That book goes through all of the major religious sites and sanctuaries, but it includes an extended discussion of the memorial temples present at Abydos. You can find all of these books in the bibliography for this episode on my website, or in the PDF booklet on patreon.com. I highly recommend all of them if you are interested to learn more. 
Next time, we have a brief interlude to explore the tale of a woman who spent many years at Abydos and was intimately connected with the temple of King Seti. In the next episode, we will discuss the life of Dorothy Edie, also known as Om Seti. See you soon.